Hey, everybody. Welcome back to What Happened to You. Today, I'm joined by Brian Shepard. He's the host of Doc Talks podcast and is also on TikTok. He's got quite a following on TikTok, and uh, that's how we met. I was fortunate enough to be on his podcast, a guest there, and I learned a lot about myself and about the work that he does, and it was really helpful, and I'm very grateful to have you here today, Brian. Thank you for coming on the pod. Well, thank you for having me. We we did have quite a bit of fun on my podcast, so uh, hopefully this is a little probably less formal so we can really have some fun here. <laughs> yes, no structure at all. Definitely check out that episode of the Doc Talks podcast. But uh, now we're going to switch things up and hear about you this time, Brian. So um, what happened to you? Well, that is a loaded question. <laughs> you could you could say which time. Uh, sure. Yeah, so I I grew up in in small town Arkansas and was basically a welfare family and we didn't have much. To say we were poor would be an understatement. Um I, I mean as far as we didn't have any heat in the winter, so we would get, now mind you I'm 37 years old, so it's not like, you know, this is in the 40s or 50s where it's not uncommon, you know, to yeah. have not have heat, but we would do things like go to the Whirlpool plant and get refrigerator boxes and staple them to the walls to have insulation. Um, so, I mean, we were really uh, living, living life trying to survive. Yeah, that's, uh, that's some improvisation for sure. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, growing up, I uh, have both parents. My dad had a stroke uh, when he was 28, 20. 27, 28 years old, uh, completely debilitated him. He had to learn to read, write, walk, talk, everything. And so in that came a lot of anger, uh, a lot of resentment. And so there was quite a bit of, of abuse growing up. So he was 28 when that happened. And how old was he when you were born? Let's see. He was 28 when he had the stroke and I was six years old. Okay. So got 22? it. So he was 22. Yeah. Okay. Gotcha. So this is, so he had you relatively young. And when you were talking about the, the abuse that happened, what kind of things were, were going on? Well, there was quite a bit of, of emotional uh, and physical abuse. Uh, I remember, you know, being 12, 13 years old and being woke up to go to school by him beating me with a belt. You know, it's just, mm. I remember one time coming home from school sick and he beat me because I should have been able to stay at school and not throw up, you know, at least until three 30. I mean, just, you know, such a logical uh, thought <laughs> yeah. process there. So it, I, I mean, it was very bad, but it wasn't just towards me. It was towards my sister and my mother. I remember a time in the South, you know, we have uh, pinto beans and cornbread and then fried potatoes and, you know, that's just like a Southern delicacy here. Uh, and so she had made that. And my dad, when we have that, uh, this is probably too much information, but when no, we do that, he would butter his, his cornbread, put it on the bottom of a bowl, and then put the beans on top of that, and then the uh, fried potatoes on top of it, and then put ketchup all over it, and then mix it all together. Well, uh. she did that. However, she put the beans under the cornbread instead of on top top of the cornbread and uh he looked at it and he literally took the glass bowl and broke it over her head and oh, I, mean, I i remember that very very distinctly and and you know I, I just there were things that i saw that i'm just going this cannot be normal you know mm -hmm. and uh we were raised very conservative pentecostal uh my dad didn't go to church and uh he, he was very against the church life. And so if we got in trouble, he would just ground us from going to church, you know? So <laughs> it was a very awkward growing up. So, yeah. And I, I can imagine. And so did the abuse, was that going on before the stroke happened? Mm -mm. No. And, and, you know, while I was five, I remember there being a distinct difference. And, and my mom would say, uh, you're not the man that I married you know, and, and there was just a complete personality change. Wow. And when people have strokes, you know, is that like a common reaction is like a total personality shift? Well, 
Yes and no. It could be the personality changes due to the stroke, depending on where the stroke is at in the brain. Mm. However, the only way that a person's personality will change other than by, you know, a traumatic brain injury, stroke, that sort of thing is for a major traumatic life event. Having a stroke is a major traumatic life event and can change your your personality. But we have to, you know, remember here that he was basically reset to a child having to learn how to walk, talk, read, and write again. Mm -hmm. So the mentality there was, you know, and I hate to say it this way, but the mentality was that, you know, he was a third, uh, a 13-year-old with adult authority, you know, and yeah. so he, so he, to say he took advantage of it would probably be an understatement, but that's really how it felt like was that I had an authoritative 13-year-old father. And between the ages of when that happened, so six to 18 before you left your home, was there well, sort of a 17? I was 17. I got out of school. Yeah. Okay. Gotcha. What was the relationship like between like, did you find yourself feeling like you needed to f fill like an adult role in the family at all? Like, oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And what did that um, sort of consist of? Well, it made me grow up really quick. I say that like it's a bad thing, but looking back, uh, it's not necessarily a bad thing. But it did make me the, the protector in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. um, I remember several times that I would get between him and my mother or he and my sister. And so I would, they would still get hit on, but I was taking the brunt of the anger. Mm -hmm. um, so, so pretty much that is the, the main, the main thing there as far as, as having to grow up quick and try to understand logically what's going on. Right. And did you ever consider like were authorities ever involved in anything or was it? No, uh, this was back in the day before police really cared about kids. <laughs> you, know, <laughs> you know, if you were yeah. getting beat, you probably deserved it. Now had, had we had the rules and regulations that we do here today, my father would still be in prison. And, you know, it's just, uh, I remember one time I, I learned to play the piano self-taught and we had gone to this barn. I don't even remember why, how, but there was this old upright piano, like, you know, the thousand pound upright pianos. Yeah. And it was green, like, like puke green. Mm -hmm. And, um, I asked whoever we were with if I could have it, and uh, they were like, sure. So we put it in the, in the carport, and I would go out there and start playing on it, and my dad would come outside and, and be like, I can hear you banging on that piano in the house. And I'm like, well, of course you can, because you're sitting against the wall where it's backed up to, you know, this. Mm -hmm. And uh, one day he got very angry, and he came out, and he broke four of my fingers, um, and then gave the piano away. And so when I say it was traumatic, I, I mean, it was traumatic. Uh, yeah. some of the things that happened. So, uh, you know, but then at the same time, there are children that have parents that have experienced much worse, you know, much worse. Oh, sure. Yeah. It, it's, uh, it definitely doesn't diminish the significance of what you went through at all, though. I mean, yeah, there's a spectrum of, of this kind of stuff. And I feel similarly when I hear people's stories uh, who have been either physically abused or sexually abused. And in my head, I'm like, wow, like, I guess I didn't have it that bad at all. But it's really not, it's not something that's worth comparing because every, every situation is so different and unique. And um, yeah, it's wild that you went through that. And I'm curious, like, in the midst of all of this anger, was there any sort of glimpses of what he was like before the stroke happened? Um, which of course, you know, I was five. So remembering anything prior to that uh, would be uncommon. Mm -hmm. However, I do remember things like, you know, we would build forts and we would play in forts and we would uh, go with my, my nanny chef, my dad's mom to the horse races. And, and, you know, I remember those kind of things, but, as far as any distinct memories, it's very, very fuzzy as to what exactly happened. Totally. And when you talk about like emotional abuse, are there any specific things that you can think of that come to mind when you say emotional abuse? Well, I, I, he told me one time that I was not worth the cost of a bullet to kill. 
Yeah, that's tough to hear from your dad, for sure. It's tough to hear. Or he would say things like, I wish I could sell you for what you thought you were worth and buy you back for what you're actually worth. Damn. And I'm going, okay. And yeah. so there was this, as you could imagine, very low self-esteem, you know, even in school and, and didn't really have friends. I was the awkward kid. You know, and, and so it, it just really affected, uh, and, and today somewhat still really affects my life. He's still alive. He, my mom and he are still married. I would like to say he's mellowed out. Uh, but like over Christmas, we went and stayed a day or two. Of course, my mom wasn't there because she had been in the hospital with COVID. She was in rehab. Uh, she got out this past Friday, 161 days she had been gone due to COVID. Whoa. Um, so, oh, it's amazing that you just got out. Yeah, yeah. Hell yeah. And, and I just can't believe it. But yeah. anyway, we were at my dad's house uh, because my mother had told me to go take all the kids and do all the Christmas shopping and told me how much to spend on them. So I had done all of this elaborate stuff for Christmas. And my son, Luke, was there and my two nephews and niece. And my dad's really bad about agging stuff on and getting the kids riled up. Mm-hmm. And then when they get riled up, getting onto them for being riled up. Okay. And so they had done something. I don't, I don't even remember what it was, but he was the, he was the instigator of whatever it is they were doing. And uh, he told my son, Luke, come here. And, you know, I'm like, okay, well, whatever. And then he said, come here. I'm going to whip you. And immediately in my mind, I said, you will not touch my son. Yeah. You know, it was because I was taken back to that. I'm going to get in trouble whether or not I've done anything. I mean, literally he would give me a spanking every night before I went to bed and say, this is for what you've done today that I don't know about. Mm. And, and I, and it was that kind of, that kind of constant, constant battle of, is this really what life is supposed to be like? Yeah. Uh, I was, I, I really didn't know how other kids had it because I weren't, I was not allowed to stay at somebody else's house for any period of time. Mm-hmm. Um, I wasn't allowed to sleep over those kind of things. Uh, Did that, uh, was that because they didn't want you to get molested or was that just a <laughs> punishment <laughs> of some kind? I, I, I honestly, I think it was probably because he didn't want anybody else to know what I thought was normal, you know, oh. and, and for him to get in trouble. Right. Um, yeah. I say this jokingly, but I think I, in some ways would have rather been molested than to <laughs> deal with some of the things I've dealt with. Yeah. So, um, and yeah. Not downplaying your story at all. Not uh, at all. I, I think, uh, you know, not, not picking sides here, but um, I definitely didn't have any bones broken as a result <laughs> of getting molested. So there were some upsides for sure. Yeah. But yeah, that is, uh, that's bananas. And so maybe we can get into this a little bit later because I wanted to ask you about the relationship that you guys have now. But um, let's go back to what your life was like after you got out of this household. And how, how did it feel to when you were driving away like from, from your hometown and where you grew up and just going off to North Carolina? I was just, I remember this liberating feeling. Now, mind you, I was 17 years old, so I didn't know what I was going to do when I got to wherever I was going. And so I went, I found the singing group. Uh, I lived with the guy that owned the singing group for, for a period of time. And I just remember going, I'm finally free. I finally can do whatever I want to do. And I'd never experienced that before. And it wasn't scary. It was, it was, well, you know, if I'm going to mess up, nothing as bad is going to happen to me as I've been through the last 17 years of my life, Mm -hmm. you know, so I did. The only thing that really bothered me about it was that my mother was very, very upset uh, about my leaving. However, my mother is not one of those people that give you unsolicited advice. And even if you ask for advice, a lot of times she won't give you advice. She'll just say, well, you've got to find out what works for you. And, and, and I have found that to be a very good asset as well. Uh, because some parents are, you know, constantly telling you what to do and how to do it. And, and then you feel obligated to do what they say to do. And so there was, that was about the only thing that really bothered me about uh, leaving was that my mother was upset that I wouldn't be there anymore. 
Yeah, I wonder if a big part of that was had to do with just the role that you had embodied as a member of the household who was standing up for what was right. Who knows? Did you guys ever talk about that? No, my mother would say, my dad would not acknowledge that he did anything wrong. I mean, mm-hmm. he, that, it didn't happen. That was his excuse. My mother would say he didn't mean to, he was sick. And I'm mm-hmm. going, okay, but he has a conscious mind. He is making these decisions to do that. So while he is sick, that's not an excuse. But we never had that conversation until I was like 26 years old after the incident happened that that happened when I was a police officer and I moved back and was living with my parents and had a nervous meltdown. And and that's when it was all told. And uh, so, yeah, we can talk about that later. Yeah. Great. (laughs) So I hope you're taking notes because I will forget by the time we get there. Got a pad right here. (laughs) (laughs) So you get to North Carolina feeling free, probably for the first time. Mm -hmm. And you wanted to become a police officer. You wanted to help people. And at what point did you actually become a police officer? Well, I went into the academy. I lost 120 pounds in 21 weeks uh, at, at the police academy. I mean, well, I mean, you're doing, you're running 10 miles a day. You're doing 1,500 push-ups, 1,500 setups, 1,500 jumping jacks, 1,500 leg lifts a day. I didn't want to eat. I was too what? tired to eat. So that's, I, that's an insane, just the push-ups alone. Like I whip out a hundred push-ups a day. If I, if I am able even to do that mm-hmm. on a daily basis and I feel like massively accomplished 1500. We'll see, yeah. We'll see what we did was called triangles. So you would do five uh, of each push-ups, leg lifts, jumping jacks and sit-ups. And then you would do 10 and then you would do 15. Then you would do 20 and you'd work your way all the way up to a hundred and then you would come right back down. Uh, but there was no break in between. Uh, and if somebody failed, like if you were on 20 push-ups and somebody got out of cadence on the 20 push-ups, you started over with 20 push-ups. So by the end of the day, 1500 was a really good round number as to what we'd have to do. But you know, there were days we would go out there and do burpees and, uh, or sit on a wall, you know, it just, it was crazy. It was crazy. But I did it. And that was the other thing. When I went into the police academy, my dad told me, he said, well, you'll never make it. You're too fat. Mm. And I was, and so then I was bound and determined hell of high water. I was going to do it. (laughs) Uh, And so I told my dad, uh, cause he is extremely afraid of, of heights, like big time. And I said, so since you think I can't do it, when I do it, you're going to fly out here for my graduation. He was like, yeah, I'm not even worried about it because you won't, you won't make it. So um, I don't have to tell you whether or not he came out there when I graduated, because I'm sure you can already figure that out that it didn't happen. <laughs> and, you know, then after I was able to do it, it was, well, somebody must have helped you. You know, somebody must have done this. Yeah. Uh, so you finish the academy and then do you go straight into the force after that or what happens? I did. Um, the, the day that I was uh, uh, sworn in, you know, they, they gave me my gun, my badge and gave me a patrol car and this is what you do. Now, in that, I made a very good friend in the academy uh, with a young man named JP. And uh, we kind of became inseparable outside of the academy. You know, we would go hunting, fishing, go bowling, all of that kind of stuff. So when we both graduated, we were able to talk the, the administration into letting us be partners because you had to have two officers per car. So I was like, you know, this is the biggest win ever that here I get to have my best friend, you know, to work with because I mean, that just rarely happens. Yeah. Um, so I did get to do that. And so we had the time of our life. I mean, just so much fun, just a, a story. Uh, so which you're on the West coast, right? But you yeah. Seattle areas where you were raised. Yeah. So East coast, you know, has all kinds of hurricanes. And so JP and I decided there was a hurricane that was coming. That was eight, nine hours from, from landfall. And, uh, I think it was probably a tropical storm at that point. 
And we decided that we wanted to go out to the, uh, there's this area of uninhabited island out past the, the intercoastal waterway. And uh, it's federal land and there's nothing out there. So he was like, let's go and go out there and just experience what it's like with no civilization to have a tropical storm come upon you. And I was like, you have lost your mind, JP, (laughs) but it sounds awesome. Let's do it. Yeah. And I was like, but I'm not swimming over there. I mean, it was like a mile and a half. And he was like, Oh, I've got a way. And I said, okay. So we pulled up, he had got the police boat and I was like, this is a horrible decision, but okay. So we went out there and uh, when it made landfall, it was a category two hurricane. And I thought we were going to die. I mean, literally thought we were going to die. And uh, so we got in the eye of the storm and we went and the police boat was gone. Oh shit. Yeah, exactly. And I was like, we are dead. Like, dead uh and we got a lot of grace over that somehow or another we didn't get in trouble you know (laughs) what i I don't know police boat yeah the the uh the guy that i sang with uh was the chief of police so we got a lot of leeway i mean a lot of leeway so i'm not sure what that police report probably read like but i didn't get in trouble and that's all that really matters (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> the choir bond is strong. It is. Yeah. It is. That's wild. How did you get back? Uh, they sent another boat to us. And they were, and you were, you guys were just like, yeah, we swam out here. Yeah. Like, yeah, it's, we can do a hundred, fifteen hundred pushups. Like, I think like, I pled the fifth and did not say a word, uh, <laughs> because I realized what we had done could very easily be assumed criminal. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, I didn't say a word. That is nuts. Wow. I'm glad you guys made it out alive. Yeah, me too. All How time. cool to be able to be partnered with your best friend. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. It was very fortunate. So after this hurricane situation happened, what was the rest of the police force like? Well, um, so in 2006, I was involved in a officer-involved shooting where JP was killed. Um And that just, uh, it ruined my life. I'll just say it that way. Uh, Ruined everything that, and I really went back to that helpless little child, you know, that was getting beat uh, and and didn't know what to do. And um, JP was married. He had two kids, you know, here I'm single. I don't have anything. Why did he have to die? Why could I not have died? You know, all of these things that just, just surface uh, that you really don't even know why they're there. And, and the first thing they do when involved in any accident is they take your gun and they put you on administrative leave. And so then you're like, well, I know that I didn't do anything wrong, but did I do something wrong? You know, why are they treating me like this? Yeah. And, and even though, you know, it's standard procedure. So there was a lot of uh, confusion as to, to what happened there. Uh, I went into counseling, fooled them into believing that I was fine so that I could go back to work. Uh, My coping skill was always to delve myself back into work. No matter what in my life, it's always been, okay, well, I got to go to work and I'll think about this later. Um, So I went back to work and um, I, I couldn't do it. I just couldn't do it. There were, there were times that I would be out and not even have my gun loaded, which is so stupid uh, Mm -hmm. and unsafe. So I left the police department and I went Just before we, um, Mm -hmm. if you feel comfortable talking about it, can you talk about what the actual incident was like with JP? Sure. So in in the state of North Carolina, uh, when a domestic violence issue takes place, it's a mandatory arrest state. So if uh, the police were called to your house and your girlfriend said he beat me and she had marks on her, you automatically went to jail. There was no discretionary uh, decisions. It was automatic. Now, if you said, well, she scratched me too, and you could show a scratch, whether it was defensive or not, you both went to jail. I mean, it was just, and it was really crazy because 
it was a magistrate system there. And so you would have to go before a judge to get out of jail, to get a bond on that sort of thing. So women would call in on Friday afternoon and have their boyfriend or husband arrested because they could have a free weekend. They wouldn't be able to get out until noon or so on Monday. <laughs> and so people would f- take full advantage of that. Um, My God. So when you arrest somebody for domestic violence, there is a 50B um, warrant. And what that does is it, it requires for law enforcement to go to the home and to remove anything that could be considered or potentially be a deadly weapon. Any guns, any knives, nunchucks, uh, steel knuckles, anything like that. And so we had served this warrant. We were in the projects, had served this warrant, and uh, was getting everything put in the, in the back of the car or in the trunk. And uh, I remember closing the trunk of the car, and I heard JP's door shut. He was driving, and I went around to the passenger side, and it felt like somebody pulled me, like, you know, grabbed a hold of my shoulder and pulled me back. And I'm like, I looked, and there's nobody there. And I'm like, well, that was weird. And so I sat in the car and about the time that I sat, the windshield popped and I realized I was being shot at. So I get out of the car, uh, go around to the back to take cover. Uh, I return fire um, and I killed the man. Uh, That was just, uh, and I, I have a lot of difficulty over that as well. Yeah. Um, so once he was down, um, I went to him, uh, attempted CPR, which you have to do. Mm-hmm. Um, you have to handcuff them. Even if they're dead, you have to handcuff them. It's, it's procedure. And a lot of people don't understand that, you know, you just killed him. Why are you putting handcuffs on him? It's procedure, you know? Yeah. And so then I'm like, okay, he's dead. Uh, I've got hand. Where is JP? And I realized then that what I thought was his door shutting was actually gunfire and he had been shot in the temple and he was dead. One of the first shots that was fired killed JP. And so I just remember sitting there and holding him, his, his head in my lap going, no, 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 just hang on, keep, which he was dead. I mean, there wasn't anything that could have saved him, but I kept thinking, you know, just, just, hang on, don't go to sleep, open your eyes, open your eyes. And, and, and it was too late when, when the ambulance got there and the coroner's office got there, of course, they wanted me to go to the hospital and get checked out. And I was like, there's nothing wrong with me. And uh, they were like, well, you were bleeding. And I was like, no, that's JP's blood. I had actually, when somebody, when I felt that pull, I had been shot in the shoulder and it went through and through and I didn't even realize it. Um, now, after all the adrenaline went away, it hurt, like <laughs> bad, bad yeah. hurt. Uh, so, yeah. And was the guy who initiated the, the shooting, like was, was you guys were at like a domestic abuse call? Yeah, and he had nothing to do with it. Um, yeah, who we, was JP, at, I can't tell you his name for or sorry, not, not his name, yeah. but um, what um, do you know why he started shooting at you guys? Uh, he was wanted for capital murder in Florida of two police officers. Um, wow. And we recognized him. I, I remember telling JP that is so-and-so and JP said, yeah, let's get in the car and watch him and we'll call for backup because this isn't something you and I want to get involved with. Mm. And I was like, 10-4, we will, whatever. Yeah, I'm not <laughs> trying to die today. And little did I know that was the last time I would ever talk to JP. Um, so, yeah, it, it was very, very traumatic, very traumatic. On the flip side of that, uh, not just losing my best friend, the family of this man uh, sued me for um, wrongful death and excessive force. Um <laughs> Even though he had just killed, he killed JP right. before. The reason, the reason for that was, and, and a lot of people don't believe this, but you can go to YouTube, you can see this over and over again. When somebody is high on, on meth or cocaine or any type of really hard drug, you can shoot them and they will continue to come at you and not fall. 
unless you just shoot them in the head, they're not going to fall. And of course, as police officers, we're kind of taught not to shoot people in the head. You know, that's kind of yeah something we don't do. I, I shot 36 times. And out of the 36 times, I hit him 32 times. Whoa. And so, and, and then he fell. When he fell uh, is, is when I quit shooting, which is what you're trained to do. Now, this was in 2006. Digital dash cams had just come into play, you know, the police officers digitally. Mm-hmm. And so um, the whole point of the lawsuit was, is that there was no way that I could have hit him 32 times and him still be standing. The dash cam showed that. I mean, clearly. But because there had been no legal precedent set for digital cameras, they did not allow it as evidence in the court. Jesus. So the first lawsuit, they got like $7 million. uh, And then we appealed it and they got like $13 million. And I'm just going, and I finally told my attorney, uh, I said, look, man, if they can get 13 million out of me, then I'll split it with them. You know, I yeah. just, there's <laughs> no way. Um, and, and I said, and I'll, so I'll just file bankruptcy. And he was like, you realize that on a civil suit where there is intent, malicious intent, you cannot file bankruptcy on that. It's like they, you will literally have to pay out for the rest of your life. And so that added that much more to my depression that, you know, how is this going to work? Yeah. Um, so and it's, it's so insane that like, I get that they didn't have uh, digital cameras were new and stuff, but it's like, Hey guys, we can see what happened. And so when they, when they sued you the first time, it was you specifically as because it, it was a civil court, so it didn't have to right. do with the actual police department. No, they sued the police department. Uh, they sued the city. They sued the chief. They sued the major. They sued the lieutenant. They sued the sergeant, and then they sued me because you sue the whole chain of command. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, the thing about it was is that when they sued me, they sued me individually not as an employee, but individually. So I had to pay for representation. And, you know, I think I added up over the period of the six and a half years that it went on, it was a little over $100,000 for representation that, that I wasn't going to get back. Um, so anyway, at the end of the day, there was a ruling that said, I remember there, it was in the Supreme Court. And the judge asked, would we be willing to pay the final funeral cost if they dismissed the entire thing? And I, I said, hell no. And my attorney hit me so hard. I think I still have a broken rib from where he hit me. And he <laughs> was like, your dad? Yeah, oh yeah. Yeah. He was yeah. like, shut up. You don't even know what the final funeral cost is. And I'm yeah. like, I don't care. You know, I don't care. And he was like, shut up. So they asked and the attorney said, we don't have that information with us today. And the judge was like, you come to court looking for money and you didn't bring that bit of information. Yeah. And he was like, well, I just don't, I just don't have it with me today. And the judge said, well, you've got about 10 minutes to produce it or I'm going to just dismiss the whole thing. I'm like, there we go. That's well, (laughs) what happened was is that, uh, this, this man's body was taken to the state examiner and then they had three independent autopsies and then was sent back to the state examiner. They did not have the money to give proper burial. So the state cremated the body. Their final funeral cost was $12 and 50 cents for the death certificate. And my attorney, Brian Eads looked at me and he said, do you need to borrow $12 and 50 cents? <laughs> and I was like, actually, yes, I do actually. Uh, <laughs> and at a hundred grand as well yeah, while we're at it. Yeah. Right. Uh, and so I ran down to the clerk's office and paid it and it was all done. And, wow. you know, and then I'm like, what just happened? You know, what, 
what just happened. But part of that agreement was that I could not tell who this person was. And that, that file is actually sealed. If you go to look at it, you can't find it. And so it went all, all the way to the Supreme Court. Yeah. Uh, and that's where the precedent was set that digital camera footage could be used so long as there was the ticker at the bottom of the screen that was complete cadence of time that, that uh -huh. it was not that that was how they would prove that it was unaltered. Of course, ours had that, you know, and so anyway, it all went away. So, you know, it, it bothers me because for six and a half years, I'm going through this over and over and over again on trial yeah. over and over again. And it's just, you know, ridiculous. So, and all of that happened, even though they knew that this guy was, had a, a, attempted to kill two police officers in Florida. He did kill two police he officers in them. Florida. Mm -hmm. All of that happened, and he had already killed two people. And, and they his were father, still... his father, was in prison for killing a police officer and throwing his body into a dumpster. Holy shit! Uh, yeah, I, I'm like, okay, so sue me because I'm the bad guy here. Yeah, you know, he killed wow. my best friend, and now you're going to sue me for killing him. That that makes perfect sense. Yeah. <laughs> Wow. And I've got my notepad here. So this all, this all took you back to your parents' place. It did. So uh, I went to work for the sheriff's office because the, the county sheriff there, it was a large county, but not a lot of people. So I worked the night shift and literally, you know, went out behind the high school and slept all night long and, you know, would take a call for service if I had to. I had worked there for about three months and one night I got a call that there was a vehicle going west in the eastbound lane. And so I get on the interstate, lights and siren going just as hard as I can. And I see this car and I'm, I'm trying to, you know, use my spotlight to get their attention. And I get up to probably, which I'm on the opposite side of the road, I get up about probably 100 yards and the semi swerves to not hit the car and the car hits head on with a minivan. And so when I got to that accident, the mom and dad and three kids that were in the minivan were dead. And the girl who was in the car going the wrong way was 16 years old. She had just got her driver's license. She got on and off ramp. I mean, just a mistake. She wasn't yeah. drunk. She wasn't and the engine of her car had her pinned in half. And so she was still alive, but the moment that she was pulled out, she would die. And I knew that. So I'm sitting there trying to talk to her as, as nice as I can. And I tell dispatch to get her parents to come because she's going to die the minute we pull her out. And at least maybe her parents could see her alive. And, um, her car caught on fire and she was saying, uh, my legs are burning. My legs are burning. And I'm going, your legs are 20 feet behind your car. They're not burning. Um, <sighs> and, but then I thought, you know, do I let her lay here and burn to death? Even though I know that when I pull her out that she's going to die. And so I pulled her out. She died immediately. And once that scene got cleared, I went directly to the sheriff's office, put my badge, my gun on the desk, said, I'm done. I just can't, just can't do it. So then I moved to Nashville for two weeks. Um, <laughs> so then, <laughs> just move, move I, on I moved with the to story. Nashville. Holy yeah. cow, man. That is so, wow. I, I'm sure though, you've heard of people like getting, getting stuck between train cars. You know, the... Oh the pinning together is keeping the blood flow from spilling oh, right. out. Yeah. So when you take it apart, you immediately die from blood loss. Yeah. Um, it's kind of like having a tourniquet on the middle of your body and then just letting that tourniquet go and all the blood comes out. Yeah. So, um, yeah, ah, I think you made the right decision. I mean, you did. Well, her mother, I went to the funeral It was one of the hardest things that I did. And her mother told me, she said, I, I want you to know that I, you did the right thing. I would rather her die in strangers' arms that cared for her than to burn to death. 
Yeah. And that gave me a lot of, a lot of resolve in that matter. So I moved to Nashville for two weeks. <laughs> uh, that's about as long as people can afford to stay. Uh-huh. And uh, I played bass guitar and I went and I played um, bass guitar in some of the clubs downtown uh, Nashville. And there's a country singer who you may know who he is by the name of Randy Travis. Uh-uh. You don't. Oh my gosh. Okay, the podcast is over. You don't know who Randy Travis is. Uh, you can Google it later. Um, yeah. Very, very well-known country singer. He wrote, uh, well, he didn't write it, but he sang the song Three Wooden Crosses. I don't know if you've ever heard that song. Uh, it's a country song about, about three people that died in a bus accident. But anyway, you can look up the premise of that song. Mm-hmm. So I had gone into the studio that day to play bass guitar on that album that stood at number one spot for almost two months. Wow. And they, they paid me a hundred bucks to pay bass guitar on 10 tracks of this song. And then the piano player didn't show up the day of the recording of three wooden crosses. So I played bass and piano on that track. And, you know, I, they gave me like an extra 50 bucks for playing the piano, which if you listen to the song, you don't even know there's a piano playing. I mean, it's, it's crazy. But I was just like, I can't do this. You know, I'm not, I'm not built for this. I can't not know where my next paycheck is coming from, mm-hmm. which ended up uh, my mom renting a car for me and I came back home. And then it really made me mad because when the album came out, Three Wooden Crosses, my name was nowhere on it no credit to me at all. So now I'm at home. And uh, so that was a very weird experience. What Uh, was it like going back home initially after having had all of these experiences that you've had? Initially, uh, you know, my whole mindset was I'm going to stay here as little as as possible. And if that means I have to get three jobs and only sleep here for two or three hours a day, then that's what I'm going to do. But when I got home, my dad was trying to control everything that I did to the point of where I finally saved up enough money that I could go rent this garage apartment that was like 250 square foot. I mean, it was, yeah, you could lay on your bed and put your feet up on the commode. I mean, it was small, small. And he flipped out when I told him I was moving out to go to this apartment. And I was just like, you know, this is my life. I can do whatever I want to do. Uh, And he was always to the point of, well, you know that we can't give you any more money. And I'm going, what money have you given? (laughs) You know, maybe I'm lost here, but yeah. Were you worried at all of experiencing similar things that you had experienced when you were a kid? No, because I'd have beat his ass. Yeah. (laughs) I was at that point. JP and I did a keto. I was a fifth degree black belt in a keto. And, you know, he, he wasn't going to do anything like that. He wasn't going to dare touch my mother while I was there. I mean, it was just, yeah. it, it was one of those things when I came back, I came back a completely different individual with a, as Lem Nissen would say, a particular set of skills. <laughs> uh, and, and so, you know, while it crossed my mind that that could happen, I, in my mind, said, whatever he does, it will return tenfold to him yeah. by the time I'm done. Yeah. So you think that's probably why he sort of adapted and was just trying to control things rather than physically making yeah. things happen? Yeah. And he's right. chilled out quite a bit. I mean, just he's, he's chilled out. So you were, you were home for a little while. Where did your life go after that? So... While I was working with the sheriff's office, I have, I have a bachelor's degree in, in church music, of all things. And I got a master's degree in music theory. And so after things started changing in, in my mind, like I was manic, but I didn't know I was manic. Mm-hmm. Between leaving the police department and going to the sheriff's office, I would go on shopping sprees, you know, and spend $2,000 in a weekend for stuff I didn't need. I would be very promiscuous in that in a weekend having four or five partners wasn't, I mean, it was just like normal and, you know, mind you, I'm 25, 26 years old. I mean, that's not 
really that uncommon of a behavior for someone who is very well looking, very well built and in a police officer's uniform, <laughs> you know, to be able to, to, uh, endeavor those things. Uh, yeah. I got to so, get a hold of one of these police officer uniforms yeah. of that, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> it's amazing. It is just amazing. Now I will say, uh, I had a lot more guys hit on me than I did girls. So, <laughs> I mean, with the good comes the bad. So, yeah. uh, it is what it is. Not that that's a bad thing. I shouldn't say that the good comes with the bad. So I, oh, I, I mean, it's, I it's flattering either way. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's just not as exciting as somebody that you're interested in. So, absolutely. yeah. And when I really came to started coming out of this depression is when I really started studying psychology. And so I applied for a PhD program in Christian cl clinical counseling and was accepted, uh, and it was an online course. So I moved back home in 2007, and I graduated with my PhD in 2009, working at a Walmart portrait studio with a PhD. <laughs> I mean, it is what it is. Yeah. I left there, and I became the administrator of a building uh, that was for handicap and mobility-impaired persons and people over 62, uh, and so that's kind of where my professional career in psychology started. Then I met my wife. We met on MySpace. Nice. Of, of all places. Yeah, I didn't um, know that was a, that was the thing. I, I oh, yeah. remember having a MySpace back when I was in like seventh grade. That was my first social media. Right. And, because uh, if you remember, in order to have a Facebook, you had to have a .edu mailbox. I don't in order remember that, to, come yeah. to be on Facebook. So I was out of school. I didn't have a .edu anymore, so I couldn't be on Facebook. So I met my wife. I left uh, that job and started pastoring a church and opened a private Christian psychology practice there at that church. Uh huh. And it just took off. That's awesome. Has having that background in psychology really allowed you to heal more um, than you may have been able to otherwise? I don't know that it's helped, but I don't think it's hurt. Before I moved out of where I was staying, because I had to live at the building, and there was this drain pipe that come down from the, it was a rain runoff drain pipe that come down through my apartment. And I remember getting home one day and just looking at that drain pipe in this utility closet and going, and mind you, we were still going through court trials, you know, at this point in time. Yeah. I just remember looking at it going, I could just hang myself and it would all end. Mm. And I went, that's the dumbest thing I've ever thought in my life. <laughs> and so I called my mom, told her immediately that I had had this thought. Um, she said, well, you need to go to the hospital. I said, I'm not going to the hospital because I don't want to jeopardize my career as a mental health practitioner. Even though I don't think it would, I didn't want that stigma around my name. And so I called a good friend of mine who is a psychiatrist in Little Rock, which is now where I live. And I came to Little Rock. He put me on all kinds of medicine and told my mom that if she would stay with me for the next six weeks, that he would not put me in the hospital. So she quit her job and she stayed with me for six weeks. My father was livid. And my mom's going, I don't understand why you're mad. Like, do you want me to be at home and work or do you want your debt, your son to be dead? Right. And I did not hear the response. Uh, and I'm probably glad that I didn't because I'm not <laughs> sure what that response would have been. Yeah. But that started my whole thing of, I had been manic for years and not even known it. And that really, that started my, my mental health journey as an individual getting therapy and getting, um, uh, you know, treatment uh, through medication with a psychiatrist. And that really is, is where all of that began. That's really amazing. Honestly, yeah. that, that you were able to go through all of that and come out the other side. And, yeah. you know, I didn't know any of this stuff uh, about you, your childhood experiences. We talked very briefly about the experience with JP on your podcast, but um, 
it's really cool to see the content that you produce now. And for those of you that haven't seen Brian's TikToks, you should really go check them out because it's like super informative, but also entertaining information that you present in a way that I really gravitated towards. And it's just such a crazy story. And to see the person that you are now is really, it's, it's awesome. Um, well, you know, you've made it on TikTok when there is a channel that is created to totally debunk everything that you say. <laughs> and I have had three of those so far. Um, really? They don't take off, but man, they tag me in everything that they do. And oh, wow. I'm just like, you know, I, if I had the balls to do this, I wouldn't be tagging the creator yeah. know, in it. I would try to let that grow organically. Right. Uh, but right. Yeah. Maybe that's yeah. the uh, the parents of the dude that you uh, shot just trying to get some vengeance or something. Who knows? So of all the experiences that you had, how did that affect your family life now and going into fatherhood and having had these experiences? Well, <clears throat> you know, it's uh, people with PTSD or even people with CPTSD have a very hard time explaining why the triggers do to them what they do. There was a period of time where I could not watch like cops on TV. Yeah. Now, if it was a fictional movie that had cops in it and I knew that it was not real, like The Walking Dead, you know, the cops in that did not bother me. But if I watched something like, you know, Blue Bloods, I couldn't watch it because even though it was fictional, it could happen. Or if a commercial came on TV that was a, a commercial for one of these shows, I, I would just go into a panic attack or an anxiety attack. Not long ago, there was a police officer in Hot Springs that was killed, and the news in a snippet to promote the actual story uh, blared the last call in a blip, and I lost it. Like, you know, I, I don't know if you are familiar with how a police funeral works. Uh, mm -hmm. But it's very ceremonious. So they will have the person's patrol car there or a patrol car there. They will have the radio turned on loudspeakers so that everybody around can hear the broadcast. And then dispatch will call that person's name or that person's call sign, which JP was um, 104. So they would say things like dispatch to 104. And then there would be silence. And then they would say dispatch to 104. There would be silence. And then dispatch would say, hold all traffic. And then a beep would come in. And whenever, like, the only time that you would hold traffic on, on a radio would be if something bad was about to happen. Like, that's, that was when everybody perked up and listened. So they would hold, hold silence. And then they would say, dispatched 104. And then they would say, final call, whatever the time was, and then they would say their name and, you know, something to the fact that they are forever in our hearts and we will take the watch from here. And then there's a 20, 21 gun salute and then playing of taps. Mm -hmm. um, and so hearing anything of that nature just triggers me. Uh, I've gotten a lot better um, because my office here is right outside of Camp Robinson. So at nine o'clock every night, they play taps. And, mm -hmm. you know, the first couple of times I thought I was hearing things. I didn't realize, you know, and I'm like, oh, this is bad. Uh, and then, mm -hmm. you know, so I've become more desensitized to it. But in, in marriage, it's hard to explain because, you know, my wife would say things like, well, you know, that's not real. Well, duh, I know it's not real, <laughs> but... You know, and there, I loved hunting, but I could not hold a gun. Yeah. I mean, it just took me back to that place for a period of time. And, and you, you can't explain what it is. And so I, I have a lot of people that'll say, my partner has PTSD. What can I do to help? And I'm like, leaving them alone. Mm. You know, when you begin, when they begin to have that trigger moment, just be there for them. Don't say anything. Just be there. Let them know that you were there. So, yeah, yeah it, it affects your relationship 100%, especially as a new married couple, 
uh, where the husband has a PhD in psychology that should have all the answers. And I'm going, I don't know. I don't know what's going on. I don't know how to explain this to you. Uh, right. so yeah, it, it, uh, did a lot of, a lot of things in our marriage, but, uh, it's, it's definitely a learning process. And so, uh, we have both learned what not to do to, or what to do to keep out outside of those parameters of, of trigger moments so that we can be healthy together. You know, she would try to hold my hand or pat my back and say, it's okay. And I'm like, don't touch me, you know, don't mm -hmm. touch me because here I am. And, and I don't know how, how your issue would be uh, if you have CPTSD. I think we talked about that a little bit, but uh, in my podcast, but literally if you could imagine yourself being in an IMAX theater with Dolby surround sound, you are in the middle of the theater watching what your brain remembers happened. And so in that moment, I can see that you're there, but I don't realize that you're the one touching me. You know, mm. it's like I'm in yeah. this dream. And so by you touching me makes me more defensive and more anxious because while I know it's you, my surroundings doesn't tell me that it's you. So right. your presence is all I really need. And in that, you know, that moment you learn grounding techniques that work for you, uh, whatever they may be. And so as you begin to ground yourself, knowing that that person is there, knowing that you're safe is, is the, the best thing that you can do for somebody. Right. Yeah. Completely different from my experience. I think partially in, because of, it was never uh, hurtful in that regard for me. It was mm -hmm. never like, there weren't like a lot of sensory things going on, loud noises or anything like that. But yeah, I, I remember having flashbacks, albeit very different. It was just helpful to have people there. It's really fascinating, man. And it's really interesting to hear it also from the perspective of somebody who does deals with this stuff professionally. <laughs> Do you ever find yourself when you're talking with clients experiencing your own feelings bubbling up? And, and Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Especially if they are dealing with something similar to what I'm dealing with. <laughs> But there's a lot of comfort there too to the client to know that you really do know what they're experiencing. You know mm -hmm. that you you have been there, and this is how you have grown, uh, and this is the steps that I have used. Maybe this will work for you. Maybe we need to work on something else. So yeah, I mean that happens to me, and I think I could honestly say, you know, the best therapist for whatever their specialty is, is because they have personally dealt with that <laughs> issue. Um, yeah. And so I think that we would have to say that every therapist has that point, but we kind of have a way of redirecting a conversation to pull ourselves out of that, but still make the client aware of, of what they're dealing with. Yeah. There's a certain type of understanding that only comes from experience. And uh, if you can pair that with training and obviously all the work that you've done, it makes a really amazing combination. And this, the way that you presented this information and everything that you've gone through, it's really, um, it's really inspiring to hear. And I'd like to ask you, what kind of advice would you give to somebody who has been through something similar, who is trying and hoping to get to the point that you're at now? The, the number one thing that I would say would be that in these moments, you feel like you just can't go on. You feel like your life is coming to an end. And I would remind you that you have made it through everything so far. And if you take all of the bad stuff that you have been through in all of your life, it probably still is more than what you're dealing with today. Mm. And you made it through all of that. And so let's get through today and then we'll get through tomorrow and then we will get through this together. Uh, one thing that as somebody who cares for people with mental health conditions is we've got to be very careful not to use the words, you will get over this because you never get over it. You will get through it. You're not going to get around it. You're not going to get over it, but you will get through it. And there's hope just knowing that, Hey, I hate to coin Richard Simmons, which you probably don't even know who that is either. I do know Richard you Simmons. You do. <laughs> <laughs> wow. If, if I can do it, you can do it. And we're all in this together. You know, 
you're never too far away from somebody that really cares about you. And, and don't be ashamed to, to reach out and ask for help. In dealing with people who have attempted suicide, never once has that person told me that they wanted to die. They've always said there was no other way that I could see to make it stop. Hmm. And, and so it's not that we want to die. It's that we want it to all stop. But if it stops suddenly, you're not going to be able to grow and to help other people who go through the same thing. And there is a certain point of comfort that you get in just knowing that somebody else has made it through. That is profound. There is like this, an additional ability that you can find when you're trying to get through things like this, which is the ability to help other people. And I didn't really realize it until I started doing stand up about my experience where I was like, okay, this can be so fulfilling for me and also for other people that hear what I'm saying. And it's sort of like having the ability to take the attention away from yourself and alleviate other people's problems just by being honest about your, your own feelings and experiences. Mm -hmm. It can really transform whatever you've gone through into something that you're grateful to have the ability to help other people get through too. Mm -hmm. And um, I really uh, admire the person that you are and the transformation that you've had. And it's just so cool to see. I feel very fortunate to know you. I can't thank you enough for coming on here, Brian. And to anybody who uh, is dealing with any kind of this stuff, I would highly recommend checking out Brian's TikToks and his podcast. And if you just want to plug your Instagram, anywhere that people can find you. Sure. So on TikTok, it's the, or excuse me, doc underscore Brian. Uh, on Instagram, it's the underscore doc underscore Brian. Anything doc Brian, you're probably going to find me. Uh, or you can just go to my website, thedocbrian.com. It has a link to all of my social media there uh, that you can find me. Perfect. Brian, thank you so much for coming on here, man. It was a pleasure talking with you. And no I uh, can't wait to have you back on here again soon. Sounds great. Sounds great. Take care of yourself. You too.